0: Hey, we want to uh, mention a couple of things as we're firing up, and that is we're so excited about the growth we've experienced here at God Speak, um, but we want to maintain that growth. And one of the things that, you know, just even starting the the one o'clock service, so we're going to be starting Rockin' Saturday Nights, March March 13th, here at God's Speak in the house, 6 p.m. Mike and his team is going to bring bring in the worship, and we're going to be going through the Bible reading. Hopefully, you got one of these on your seat. Uh, that is being anchored in God's Word. In these troublesome times, we need to be anchored really solid in our walk with God. And so, this is a two year Bible reading plan that we're going to go through together, and then I'll be preaching from that week's reading on Saturday nights. And when uh, Rob, Pastor Rob's feeling spunky and perky, he'll do all four services. Otherwise, he'll probably be doing the Sunday morning services. And when he's out of town, then I'll do all of the services. We're just working together in that process. So you can check it out. You can go online. You can download this on, uh, um, just go to godspeak.com, click. And then you go up there to Anchored, click. You can come down here, print it off. You can check it out, uh, download, download to view, and and have it with you. So we're really excited about being anchored in the Word of God. And what a blessing that's going to be for our hearts and our lives. Well, we want to bring you up to speed uh, about the important issues this week as we like to do here at God Speak. And maybe you didn't catch the article about God Speak and our legal troubles. Maybe you're new to the fellowship and it's not every church that in their announcements talks about being in trouble with the law. So uh, we are law-abiding citizens until they tell us that we can't sing praise songs to our king. And uh, so we're not going to put up with that. We're going to push back. So because of that, though, this article, uh, the county, and I'm only giving you a blip of the article, uh, Assistant County Counsel, the lawyer for the county, Jacqueline Smith, at the beginning of this article said that they've pretty much settled all the disputes and fines with people up to this point except us. So they've settled things up, except with God speak, despite a series of Supreme Court decisions siding with religious entities, the most recent, a 6-3 to three ruling that says states cannot ban indoor religious services outright. So that's nice that they can let us come indoors, but there's a lot of restrictions. The church in Dos Vientos neighborhood is not following the new relaxed restrictions, she said, which permit indoor gatherings provided the building is kept at 25% capacity and worshipers are following safety protocols like wearing masks and social distancing. So uh, this is the thing, you guys. The restrictions are average for the last couple of months on Sunday mornings in this room. This room, we have 400 seats, so if we're going to do 25%, that would mean 100 of you could come in here, right, per service. We would have to do 15 services a Sunday, 15 services a Sunday. That's nothing like the next article I'm going to tell you about in Canada where you can only put 15% in your sanctuary, all right then with mask and social distancing and i want you to know if you're new or maybe you're even listening to this live stream we're not crazy people all right and uh, but we're thought to be the super spreaders because we're gathering together i think by now after all this time almost a year we got some herd immunity going on what do you think <laughs> But I want you to know that we're not the only people that think this way because people that are are only listening to certain echo chambers on mainstream media, uh, there are three justices on the highest court of our land that agree with us that churches should have no restrictions. And two of them, this quote, if Hollywood can host a studio audience while people cannot worship indoors, something has gone seriously awry. Justices Neil Gorsuch and Clarence Thomas. Pray for those guys, right? For, for help. They contacted the Acorn newspaper, contacted Pastor Rob McCoy, and surprise, surprise, he said, nothing's changing here. Right? So, <laughs> praise the Lord. Woo! But being a real student of history myself, what people don't get, they don't get if we bow now to the state, they will begin to encroach, encroach, encroach. So, We are pushing back. We are stepping up because our ministry is we want to declare the liberty that people can have spiritually in their relationship with Jesus Christ and the liberty that we have as United States citizens that is granted to us by the guiding principle and uh, document of the Declaration of Independence and our U.S. Constitution. So we... And so we're building up God's kingdom, but we're fighting for our citizenship because, you guys, if we don't fight now, people will say, well, well, the church will just go underground. Yes. You know, if I'm in in communist China, I take that for granted. I'm going to sneak around and get into churches. I've done it in India, sneaking around. I've done it. And and, and I take that for granted because that's the, the governmental structure, right? You have to do what you have to, but we're, the church is above ground now, so I think we should be scrappy while we're above ground. Before, before we have to go underground, because eventually we'll probably have to go underground if this continues on, right? But we're going to be scrappy until uh, Pastor Rob goes to jail. You go, that's not going to happen. Until I'll preach the next Sunday, then I'll go to jail. We're going to have an amazing jail ministry here in Ventura County. <laughs> And I was raised by an ex-convict and visited on Visitor Day, San Quentin, when I was seven years old. So I'm okay with the prison ministry. Anyway, but if you think that's not so, look to our neighbors to our north because this happened this week. I was arrested.
1: Um, I was arrested and released in the same moment.
2: And so that was for violating the public health order?
1: Yes, uh, Section 73.1. Of the public health act yeah by god's grace i am prepared and resolved to to go to jail for hosting a gathering for the body of christ here at grace life
0: i think we need to understand that persecution often results from doing what the state forbids
2: Sheila Gunn-Reed for Rebel News, and I'm here at Grace Life Church near Spruce Grove, Alberta. And this church behind me has been the site of some peaceful Christian civil disobedience to the government's lockdown measures on churches and places of worship. Now, Alberta churches are currently limited to 15 percent of capacity as part of the pandemic lockdown. Now, all this is despite plummeting coronavirus case counts across the entire province for several weeks in a row. Pastor James Coates has defied the public health order to limit the attendance of his congregation. And because of that, the government has ordered this church to close. Now, in spite of the government's persecution, this church is thriving. Last Sunday, there were between 250 and 300 people in attendance. These are Christians motivated to show the public health bureaucracy that their master is God and not the government. And for all of this, the church has been under near constant surveillance by the RCMP and public health bureaucrats. Now last Sunday, Pastor James Coates was detained by the RCMP after service and he was charged for breaching the public health order for being over capacity and failing to adhere to physical distancing requirements. A pastor in Canada was detained by the police for failing to turn away his congregants and for not making his flock cover their faces as they worshipped.
0: So. If you think, okay, they arrested him, then they released him, but what you don't know is now the rest of the story that has unfolded after this interview in which you're not hearing on mainstream media. They, they arrested him, put him in jail, and this is a text from his wife, Aaron. My heart is broken. They, they tried him in secret, the officers lied to us and told us he wasn't there. They tried to hide him and sneak him out the back door. In the providence of God, one of our men was there. The officer only allowed him to tell him that we loved, he loved him and were here with him. They pulled him away. They have remanded him as our lawyer seeks the appeal. The conditions of his release are that he would not pastor anymore. I cannot visit him. So they remanded him, and they gave him this condition. They arrested him. They brought him before the court and uh, in secret. And so when they asked him, we we will release you as long as you don't preach. He said, if you release me, I'm preaching. And uh, so they remanded him, which means he will stay in custody until the hearing. That can be three weeks. That can be three months. That can be nine months. It can be whatever they want. And he's in the general population of uh, the worst of criminals in a max population. facility. So this happened this week, you guys. This is his pastor's wife text, and that's just to our neighbors to the north. And Pastor Rob and uh, Kirk Cameron did a good episode on this. Their constitution about free speech is the identical to ours because we led the way, right? They, they saw our constitution and they implemented those things. So do not think that's not coming because when the government flexes its muscles and God's people roll over, it being a A student of history, the people that took over in China and the people that took over in Russia, the first thing they went after is to muzzle and to shut down the churches because people of faith are the people that have the courage to stand up. And so they have to stop you from getting together and communicating because God's people throughout history and persecution have become a lean, mean preaching machine. Right? So. Just the heads up on what's going on. But we want to be anchored in God's Word during these troublesome times. So I encourage you to join us in the Word. And this week's uh, reading that is in this, obviously you're just getting it, but I wanted to preach from it. And we are going to be looking at Mark chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 9. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and they're going to get one to you. Just raise your hand and they'll get you a Bible. In a moment we'll stand, but I want to give just a little prep for this. The Bible is a compilation of 66 different books written by 40 different authors over a span of 1,500 years and it is inspired by the living God outside of our time-space continuum, meaning that God can speak about future events with accuracy because he dwells in eternity. Eternity is not a place with a lot of time. Actually, eternity is a place where time does not exist. It's outside of that time-space continuum, and that's where our God dwells. But having said that, you guys, this is a big read, right? I mean, it's a little intimidating, especially if you take off in Genesis and you're going like a rocket through Exodus and then you hit Leviticus and then you crash and burn in Leviticus. Leviticus is a tough read. Okay, so there's 929 chapters in the Old Testament. It's three times as big as the New Testament that has 260 chapters in it. So that means there's 1,129 chapters in this book. It's a big book. So I understand that. But it's like eating an elephant. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time right? So that's what we need to do. We're going to be reading through in two years and then God's word uh, message is going to come from that portion of scripture. But on top of that, the incredible thing is that when you read the Bible, it's the only book that actually reads you back. When you're reading God's word and you're convicted because God is talking to you, right? Right? Most books are not like that. And it's not enough for us to mark our Bible or underline our Bible. Our Christian life must be marked by God's word. Paul the Apostle told the Corinthians that you are living letters known and read by all men. For some of us, we are the only Bible people are ever going to read. And if you find someone whose Bible is falling apart, their life is probably not. Have you figured that out? You you show me somebody that's got a well-worn, tattered Bible, and I can tell you a person that is discovering stability and strength in their walk with God. And the wonderful thing about God's word is, is that it is so simply supernatural and profound that if you give yourself to it, it will rock your world. You see, we live in a day and age that Amos talked about in Amos eight eleven, when it says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor of thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. We're in a famine of God's word. Churches are shut. There's a famine in the land. That's why the growth has happened here. People are coming from other churches. That's what happened in Canada. Churches were shut down. He opened up. More people were coming because people are hungry for the word of God. But you see, the thing is, I can't get you or encourage you or inspire you to read a book that you don't trust, right? If you don't trust the word of God. How many of you have heard that the Bible has been mistranslated and there's so many mistakes and contradictions in this book, you cannot believe it? Just raise your hand if you've ever had one of those conversations, all right? Some of you don't get out much, but nonetheless, most of us have had that conversation. I want you to know that this is the most trustworthy ancient document historically, linguistically, geographically, when it surrounds the Bible lands, of any document in human history. And if you want an illustration of that, we trust other ancient writings with just a few ancient manuscripts. And nobody questions whether they are actually accurate from the time they were discovered. Works of Plato, Herodotus, and various things. And this illustration, this little three-minute video, really gives you the visual of that, that you can trust this book. Check this out.
1: Have you ever heard someone claim that the Bible's been through so many changes and so many revisions that we really can't know what the original message was? Let's use some coffee beans to illustrate a major problem with that argument. And what we're gonna do is look at the manuscript evidence for some ancient writings compared to the manuscript evidence for the New Testament. That is, we're gonna be looking at the handwritten copies made before the days of the printing press for each of these works. For example, for Tacitus, He wrote his famous work called The Annals around the year AD 100. And the earliest copy we have for that comes from about 750 years later. So there's a 750 year gap between when it was written and our earliest copy. And how many copies do we have? Just two. So let's put two beans in this cup to represent those manuscripts. For Plato's Dialogues, there's a 1200 year gap and we have just seven copies. For The Histories by Herodotus, There's a 1,300 year gap with just nine copies. And we have 10 copies of Caesar's Gallic Wars after a 900 year gap. Now very few people question whether we have the original message of these writings, yet they constantly attack the Bible on this point. And yet the manuscript evidence we have for these is so minimal and the gap between when they were written and when their earliest copies come from is enormous. So what about the New Testament? Well, it was written in the first century AD, and the earliest manuscript evidence we have for it comes within 50 years of that time. Now, how many copies do we have? Well, there are nearly 6,000 Greek New Testament manuscripts, and they average about 450 pages each. Looks like I should have used a bigger cup. But you know what? That's just the Greek manuscripts. When we count the other languages, like Latin, Coptic, in Armenian, there's another twenty thousand manuscripts. As I mentioned earlier. Critics and skeptics rarely question whether we have the original message of these writings, and yet they frequently attack the Bible on this point. You know, it really just shows their bias. But when we look at the evidence before us, we see that their arguments really don't amount to a hill of beans. Now, some critics will say that there are a lot of differences between those New Testament manuscripts, or these differences, what we call variants. And they say there's tens of thousands of these variants. But the reason there's so many of these variants is because there are so many manuscripts. So what the critic is trying to do is take a great strength for the reliability of the text and turn it into a weakness. But here's the great thing about this. Because we have so many manuscripts, we can compare and contrast those. We know where those differences are, we know what they are, and we know that they're really insignificant and rarely do they have any bearing on the meaning of the text. In fact, even Bart Ehrman, the leading textual critic today, an agnostic, says so that essential Christian beliefs are not affected by the textual variants in the New Testament.
0: So you can see the evidence that we have, there's absolutely no comparison. And the contradictions are so minuscule, they're little, even an agnostic who does not believe the authenticity of the scriptures, but he as a scholar, Ehrman, uh, Bart Ehrman, declared it, it really changes nothing about our message. These variations that are small in the different languages. And, as he mentioned, the ability to compare text with text. So, the thing is, is well, okay, that's what we know historically. But what does internal evidence from God's word declare? In, first, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, it says, Prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Men, though they were implemented, 40 men are the authors of this scripture, really they were inspired by the Holy Spirit that carried them along. How did we get the scriptures? The Holy Spirit inspired these men to write these writings. As Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16 with the NIV translation, which is the best on this verse, all scripture is God breathed, God infused by his spirit Into men to write. So both Peter and Paul, Paul is the overwhelming author of the New Testament. He has written 13 of the 26 books of the New Testament. So Paul the Apostle and Peter both weigh in on this. Now, having said all of that, now hopefully you have an open heart to hear what God's Word has to say about the subject, and maybe you want to come along for our Anchored in the Word, reading through God's Word in a two-year period of time. Let's stand and read from Mark chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 9. Jesus is teaching. It says, And he began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat in on the sea. And the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea." Then he taught them many things by parables and said to them in his teaching, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth. And immediately it sprang up and because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased, and produced some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Father, we just ask now that you would open our eyes by your Spirit, that we would see wonderful things from your Word. That our hearts would be good soil for you to plant your word that we might be fruitful. Lord, we pray for Jacqueline Smith, the prosecuting attorney. You say to pray for those who are in opposition to us. And so we pray for her. We pray for Governor Newsom. We pray for the county officials, the city officials. We pray for our president and vice president and Congress. We just ask that your Holy Spirit would be poured out upon these officials, that they would come to a saving knowledge of who you are, and that in the fear of the Lord, they Would lead us in wisdom rather than tyranny. And so, Lord, we're praying for your intervention. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. The story that we're talking about is a parable. A parable means literally to cast a story alongside a truth that you want to communicate. This story is just a very everyday event for the people of this time. It's about a farmer. Here he is, he's plowing his field and he's cruising along and It's just normal visual stuff for first century believers. And then he's going to sow seed. He's going to, this is called broadcasting seed. He'd sow it by hand and not having any machinery. Even to this day, we use that term broadcasting to scatter thoughts, word, messages, right? So a broadcast network, what are they broadcasting? Thoughts, words, idea. So whether it's radio or internet, anything that's related to broadcasting goes back to this idea of planting seeds that are thrown out. And so as this unfolds, Jesus and his disciples, they have to first figure out something, if you will, to lead us into the real meat of the parable. And that is that they need to listen up, they need to speak up, and they need to perk up. First to listen up, it said, he said to them, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, I might do the Sunday school thing. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Grab both of your ears and make sure you brought your ears with you, right? But the thing is, is that just because you have a pair of ears doesn't mean you're listening here, right? I'm a preacher, and what people don't realize is that I can see you. (laughs) Week after week after week. And I can see those who are not listening, those who are zoned out, those who are angry about what I'm saying, those who their attitude, whatever it is, is you know, my parents drugged me here, I don't want to be here, it's I don't agree with a single thing, you know. They said and I'll have people shake their head no at me the entire service. <laughs> right? And I don't know if they just have a head bobble, but they don't think you can see. I can totally see. But the thing is, is that just because you have a pair of ears do not, does not mean you listen. Some people come to church for the people, and they just tune out the word. I was talking to a man in his 90s, and I knew he had came to Christ when he was like 16. He had been going to church all these years, and he had two hearing aids. And I was just making conversation with him, and I was asked, hey, you know, some people tell me that hearing aids, you get uh, feedback, and it's kind of awkward in a crowd setting or in church. And I said, how is it for you to hear the message when it comes to your hearing aids in church? And he smiled and he goes, well, I I have no problem whatsoever because as soon as the preacher starts, I turn off my hearing aids and I don't hear a thing. And then as soon as he's done, I turn them back on and I visit with the people. And I thought to myself, now, now most people would not admit that. But he was so open and honest, he just smiled like it was his own little secret. Like, you know, he could just go into Never Never Land and and put up with that time during the sermon. But people do that without hearing aids, right? Some of you are here today, and we're going to see as this breaks down, this whole parable of the sower is about sowing God's word into four types of soil, 25% apiece. And if there's 400 people in this room, that means 100 people could be categorized in each one of these. Now, hopefully it's not like that on a Sunday morning like this, but let's just think it through. First of all, you have to listen up. You actually have to be intentional if you want to hear God's word. Right? You, you have to listen. You have to tune in. But you also have to speak up. When the disciples have a question in verse 10, it says, but when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parable. They had no clue what this parable meant. Now, if you don't have a clue about what the passage is, how, how useful is it for you in your life? And so we have to ask questions about things we don't understand in the Scriptures. But none of us want to look silly It's just like why, why we don't ask questions in church. But ask questions of a Christian friend, of a Christian parent, of a classmate, or whoever's believer, or pastor. When you have questions about conundrums in God's word, and these parables needed a little instruction, they had to speak up. So you have to listen up, you have to speak up, but you also have to perk up. Notice what Jesus says here, that you have a choice. You have a choice to get involved in the process. For it says in verse 11 through 14, He said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside all things come in parables, so that seeing they may see and not perceive, hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. And He said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word of God. Now, Jesus is saying something here that is somewhat paradoxical. He's saying that parables have two sides of the same coin. It's the same message, but there's two different functions that happen. It's a two-edged sword, if you will. For those who believe, what does he tell them? He says, to you it has been given to know the king, and the mystery of the kingdom of God. Do you love Jesus? Do you believe in him? Is his spirit inside of you? To you it has been given, folks, to understand the mysteries of the kingdom. So we're so blessed because when I received Jesus and I was filled with the spirit and I started reading the Bible, I just started going, wow, wow. Now, before then, it was like a phone book. <laughs> like it's, it's a paperweight. It's a doorstop. What do you do with this big thing? It's the family Bible. Right? I don't know what to do with it. But then when the Spirit, now the mysteries, I was so blown away by God's Word because now it had been given to me, like you, to understand the mystery of the kingdom. Have you ever been baffled by people that don't get the message of the Bible? Like they're a friend, a family member, and they can hear the same message. Maybe you invited somebody to come to church with you at some time. They came to church and you, because you you, you believe in Jesus and it has been given to you to understand the mysteries of everything that was being said, but to that unbeliever, they're like, man, I don't get that. It's like a lot of wah, 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 wah and let's go have a burger. But right? They just don't get it. So the parable illuminates understanding for the believer, and it conceals that for the unbeliever, they come and go, their hearts are never opened with the, the key of faith. Face the difference. That's what unlocks the door of your heart, your mind, and your understanding, believing by faith, not only in the Lord, but in his word that he's going to bring to us. So we have to perk up. You know, when you're, when you're talking to people, you can tell that they're into it, right? They lean forward. I mean, they're leaning in because they actually want to hear what's being said. And those who sit back, fold their arms, close their eyes, and, and they don't wake up until they snore and snort and disturb the people next to them, Right? I've seen it all in church through the years. But the first illustration that Jesus gives in this story, very practical down to earth, very com- comfortable for me as a kid that grew up around uh, farming in, in rural America in a small farm town in Idaho where my wife and I grew up, uh, tractors and, and farming going on all, all around us. But in this day, there's the wayside, if you will. It says in verse 15, the first type of soil or heart is the wayside. These are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. The wayside, as you saw a picture, is there's a field, there's a field, and then there's the hard path. And the hard path is beaten down by people walking on it and driving on it. So if seed falls on it, it's too hard. It doesn't penetrate, right? It doesn't go into the soil, germinate, and grow. It's just too hard. And so Jesus said, for 25% 25% of the people, just for the sake of his illustration, their hearts are so hard when the word of God, the seed lands on it, then we have an enemy, the devil, who wants to challenge and steal God's word. He comes and says, that's not true. Don't believe that garbage. Don't believe that traditional Christian stuff. Why do you want to believe their stuff? They don't, you know, you can't trust the Bible. You can't trust God's word. And he steals the word of God out of their hearts. It shouldn't surprise us that the devil's primary attack is always to steal God's word. Because the very first temptation of Eve in the garden was a challenge at the veracity of God's word. He said, hath God said? And he challenged God's word. God was holding out on her. There was something better for her. And he does it even to this day. Now, if you came in and your heart's hard and God's word's gonna go out and we're gonna be sown away, but the devil just, unless your heart opens by faith, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. When you hear God's word and your heart opens by faith and grabs onto it and says, I believe that's true, then your life begins to change and the devil doesn't snatch the word of God away from your heart. Each one of us Before we come to Christ, these four parables matter, or the four illustrations in this parable matter. But even as a Christian, you guys, there's day by day, moment by moment, season by season, you can be in a place, as a child of God, where your heart is hard towards God's word. If you've walked with Jesus any length of time, you know what I mean. There are times you just don't want to hear God's word. You don't want to hear the Bible, You come to church, you and your wife are at odds with each other, and then you walk in to hear that it's a message about marriage. You're like, of all the Sundays to show up, i got to show up on the stupid marriage Sunday. Why? Because we don't want to hear from God's word as a husband how I'm blowing it. Or the wife doesn't want to hear about God's plan. And our hearts can be hard. Even here today, you could have arrived and you know what, you're at church, and I don't know how you made it in the door, but by God's grace he brought you, but your heart's hard. Your heart hasn't been open, maybe, in this season of your Christian life. Oftentimes, when sin begins to dominate our life, we shut the door on God's word because we don't want to hear it, right? Because it's very convicting. So there can be that hardness of heart along the wayside, and, and the devil just steals the word of God, and that's, that's the way it is. The next is the stony ground, Check out this picture. But the stony ground is that place that there might be rocks just under the soil. So there's enough dirt to let it germinate, to let it get down in there. But it says, These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises, for the word's sake, immediately they stumble." Here's somebody, they come into church, this is like, this is awesome, I haven't been anywhere where there's no social distancing and no mask, and if this is who Jesus is, I want Jesus. They receive Jesus, and for the next two or three months, man, they're so excited, they're excited about Pastor Rob and God speak, and then it happens, boom, the other shoe drops, and that is, somebody gives them a hard time for their Christianity. Their classmate in school says, you're not one of those dorky Christians, are you? A coworker says, "Hey, I heard you go to that God speak the super spreaders." Is it true? Are you one of those bigoted, narrow-minded, Bible-thumping Christians? Yes. 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 <laughs> are you Are you Are you uh, homophobic and xenophobic and no it's like God loves everybody what are you talking about people try to paint us any time a Christian is portrayed in a tv show or a movie they're the always the weirdest most backwards upside down morons on planet earth there's a purpose for that right to humiliate and to shame anybody that would say I'm a Christian I love Jesus I believe the Bible and I'm going to church this Sunday. Now that seems like that would be a normal thing in the United States of America that uh, some of the early people that got here were a Christian group called the Pilgrims. Yeah. Right? They came with their Bible in hand and they were and they had Thanksgiving and and all that stuff and and now Thanksgiving is just about turkey and if who the Dallas Cowboys are playing. <laughs> right? So we have <laughs> We're a long ways from Kansas, Toto. (laughs) There's been a lot of water under the bridge. For you who are younger, you'll have to find out what that means. But this soil, you love Jesus, you receive him, you grow quickly, you're so excited, you're filled with joy until, because of persecution... You go, oh, I didn't know it's unpopular to be a Christian. I didn't know that Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll also hate you. I didn't realize, I know what Jesus did. He died on the cross for me. But if they nailed him naked to a cross, how are they going to treat me? You see, there's this wake-up call. Jesus said, some, people, some, some think I came to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. It'll be a father against a son, a mother against a daughter, a brother against a sister, and sometimes somebody gets saved, and now their spouse is not a believer, and so they have that conflict. And sometimes your kids are ashamed of you because you become a Christian, and they're your adult children, and they want nothing to do with you because you're now a child of God. And is there anything more painful than that, you guys? None of us like rejection. I think you're an imbalanced person if you like rejection. I, 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 reject me. I'm not signing up for the club. i I don't really like that. But on the other hand, I know it's a reality, correct? This is what the Bible says. And it's a promise. And I have never, ever, ever seen this promise. You know how you go into somebody's house and they'll have scripture on the refrigerator, they'll have it on the wall, they got it on the door, they got plaques everywhere, they do scripture. Every I've never seen this one. Those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Never saw that on a plaque, ever. <laughs> Not once. Like, that's so encouraging. Jesus said, rejoice and be exceedingly glad when men speak all evil of you. When people lie about you as a Christian, I mean, are you going like, yippee? No, it hurts. It totally hurts. Some of you are experiencing that right now, but you're here, right? And the persecutions come, and it hasn't derailed you. But there are a lot of people here that it has derailed them, and they no longer come here. They're no longer a part of this work. They're no longer wanting to walk in a way that's open about their faith. Why? Because Jesus tells us that's what's going to happen to people. Just the way it is. It's no shocker. It's like, no heavy revvy. So, the third soil is the thorny ground. In verse 18 and 19, it says, Now these are the ones. Now, it might look like flowers to you in that picture, you guys, that was prior to this, but it's thistle. And where I come from, thistle is the bane of every farmer's existence because once it takes root, thistle and weeds and just, oh, it just chokes life. It says in verse 18, now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Here is just a busy life. It's not a life that's afraid of persecution. It's also not a life that the devil has ripped you off through doubting God's word. It's a this third category is people that just get so busy they don't have time to read God's word. They don't have time to come to church. They don't have time now. They believe. If you ask them, you put them on the spot. Oh yeah, I've, I've received the Lord. I I believe He died on the cross for me. Was buried and rose from the dead. I know I'm going to heaven through His blood that was shed to wash away my sins. They know they're going. But they don't bear any fruit because they never have time. They're, they're the people that constantly say, Pastor, I just don't have time to, just fill in the blank, X, Y, Z. Isn't it strange? Everything that I'm passionate about, I can figure out a way to have time for it. Have you figured that out? I mean, if you're, if you're nuts about shopping, ladies, have you ever said, I just don't have time to do it? Oh, you can, you can slip in shopping anywhere, everywhere you go. Right. Now you don't even have to leave the house, just point and click, point and click. <laughs> Guys, whatever your interest is, I mean, if you love golf or you love whatever it is, whatever you love, it's, it's just like the Red Sea parts. I got time in my schedule. I can make it happen. But busyness, just worried about the cares of this life, and I, I see it all the time, wonderful couple. They get two or three kids. Now they, they have the busyness of all the sports, and they got some music lessons, and pretty soon their life is just freight trained by a busy schedule, and you don't see them. They finally come up for air once the kids are about 16, 17, because they're on their own, and they come back, and they, they've been absent for the last uh, 10 years or so through the busy years. And they come back and say, well, our kids are an absolute mess, because you just stayed busy. Busyness doesn't enrich a life spiritually. And nobody can govern your schedule but you. And nobody can invest in your life that which is valuable but you. And no pointing, no, no preacher pointing in his bony finger towards you is gonna make any difference in that. It's your choice. See, the thing is, is that wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Wherever you really love, you guys... Your heart's just there, right? If my treasure's in my wife of all these years, then I mean if, if then that's where my heart is. If my treasure is my kids, then that's where my heart is. If my treasure's in Jesus and my relationship with him, that's where my heart is. So your heart will follow whatever you value. Whatever you value, your heart will follow that. And whatever your heart does not value, the opposite is true. If your heart doesn't follow that. Your heart doesn't value it. Nobody can instill in you a value system for your own soul but you. Don't care how old you are. A husband may be really godly, but his wife doesn't care much about it. A wife might be really godly, but the husband doesn't care much about it. Parents might be really godly, but the kids don't care much about it. Kids may be really godly, but mom and dad don't care much about it. All you can do is be a witness of the love of God in your life in such a way that people, when they see it, they go, wow, you have more love, joy, and peace than anybody I've ever been around in my life, and whatever you have, I want. How do I have that? It's about an internal value system. Now, granted, for most of us, you guys, we never had that, right? I grew up outside of church. I grew up like this heathen dog. I mean, that was just like a mess in my life. And uh, so coming to Christ and having God change my life was so revolutionary. And what happens is then there's the good soil. The good soil is somebody that hears God's word, receives it by faith, and applies it to their life. Look at it. Here's a guy standing in his field. Pretty cool. <laughs> Look at the, the crop around him. The illustration that points to this truth in verse 20, but these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit, some 30 fold, some 60, and some 100. So your life just becomes fruitful now. Because God's word has found its way into your heart. You hear God's word and you do God's word. You hear God's word and you do God's word. You hear God's word and you apply God's word. Because what does James tell us? He said, don't be a hearer of the word only. Some people think coming to church and hearing a great sermon is the same as living a great Christian life. Those two things are absolutely divorced from one another in this sense. That if I hear God's word and I don't apply God's word, it does me no good. Right? Right? So Jesus said that. He said, why do you guys call me Lord, Lord? People are going around saying, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Why do you go call me Lord, Lord? Hear my words and then don't do them. Jesus said, that makes no sense. Right? If I say Jesus is Lord and then he gives me A, B, and C practical things to apply to my life spiritually and I don't do them, can I really call him Lord? And that's what Jesus was saying. He said, if you hear my words and you don't do them, let me tell you what you're like. You're like a guy building his house, but you're building his house on the sand. So People don't know you're building your house on the sand because they don't know your private discretionary time. They don't know if you read the word or you pray or any of that stuff. And so they, they see your house and they think there's a spiritual house. But as soon as the storm comes, it falls apart because the sand has no stability he said, but let me tell you about a wise builder. They hear my words, they do my words, and it's like they're building their house on the rock. And when the storms come and the adversity comes and the trials come and the hardships come and all of us who have any kind of length of time underneath our belt, no hard times are coming to your life, right? There's, nobody's gonna get out of this life without a pile of garbage being dumped at your doorstep in one way or another. Stuff that you gotta work through, right? Correct? Unless you live a blessed life that I'm not aware of. Anyway. So we hear God's word, and this is the thing that Hebrews chapter 5, he, he, he makes it so known to us. Let me read Mark 4, 24 and 25 first, and then I'll build on that. Then he said to them, take heed what you hear. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. And to you who hear, more will be given. For whoever has, to more will be given. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. We say it this way. If you don't use it, you lose it. Right? You hear the word. If you don't apply the word, you lose it. But Hebrews 5 the writer of Hebrews, is challenging the, the hearers. He said, you know, most of you should be teachers by now. You've been walking with God so long, you should know the Bible to be able to teach other people. That's what he said. And he said, but now you still need milk, like a baby that doesn't have its teeth. He said, but I wish you had meat. Now, in Christian circles for the last, you know, 30, 40 years, people say, oh, i love to go to this teacher because he's, he's, so much meat, and it's not like the milk. And they equate it to some kind of deep spiritual understanding. That's not what the writer of Hebrews is saying. If you look, examine the text, what he's saying is you hear God's word and you don't do it in your life. That's it. If you don't use it, you lose it. So those who hear God's word and they apply God's word, they hear God's word and apply God's word, they grow. It'd be like if you go to a trainer and the trainer says, Hey, I want you to practice these three things all week and next week we'll see how you're doing when we get together, right? Get back to with the trainer and he goes, did you practice? No, okay, well let's rehearse, review those three things. So they do that week after week after week and the person never applies what the instructor tells him so can he ever take them to steps beyond one, two, three? No. So guitar teacher teaches you these chords, practice these all week, come back. When you have these down, I'll teach you some more chords but unless you apply it to your life, right, you don't have any more chords And that's the way the Christian life is. Jesus said, if you have, I'll give you more. If you hear and that measure that you're receiving. Now, this is not rocket science, you guys. You just learn the simplest biblical things. It's not some deep theological understanding. You just learn simple things like love your neighbor as yourself. And love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Okay, I'm going to do that today. God, I just, I want to love you today, so I'm just going to acknowledge you, and I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. However I want to be treated today, I'm just going to love my neighbor. And Jesus said, all the law and the prophets hang on these two things. And if I can figure out those two things, I'm rocking the world. Right? You, and people think the Christian life is so complicated. The Christian life's not complicated. The complication is with my internal business, my heart, my mind. You guys have the same problem I do? That 90% of my problems are all up here? And all in here. And fortunately I can try to maintain that most of them don't make their way out and actually do the destructive thing that they want to from the inside. So Paul the Apostle described this in more spiritual terminology in Romans chapter 7. He said, what I will to do, I don't end up doing. You made a New Year's resolution. You haven't done a single thing. Right? That which I will to do, I do not do. And that which I don't want to do, I don't want to do that anymore. That's what I keep doing. That's the human condition. Isn't that a drag? But he says, Thanks be to Jesus Christ, who will help us by his spirit that we can begin to live the way he wants us to live. That his spirit will begin to work through his word. And this is really the definition of revival for you and I. And that is to discover just simply applying God's word to our life in a daily way. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Just don't be overwhelmed. This is a big book, and you go, Whoa, that's a big book. In the Old Testament, under the law, there were 613 laws. Jesus said, All that can be summed up in just love God and love your neighbor. That's pretty nice. That's a reduction, right? From 630, 13, down to uh, two. <laughs> I've discovered after being a pastor for 32 years and counseling people for all of these years that God, by his spirit, is already communicating with Christians what he wants them to do. So they come in for counseling. This is the way it goes. I said, well, let's just pray for God's help. And so I say, so what's going on after we pray? And they go, well, this is what's going on. And, and then I ask, well, what do you think you should do about it? And they say, well, I know these Bible verses and this and this and this. And I'm not really sure to do what to do. I said, you've already explained what to do. You just need to do what you already know to do. You just want to talk out loud about, about somebody. So God bless you and see you later. <laughs> I mean, it's the easiest counseling ever because they actually already know what they probably should do. They just want to talk out loud with somebody to do it. So, is the big hurdle about not knowing enough, or is the big hurdle actually in doing what we know to do? Uh, Husbands and wives, we know what we're supposed to do. If you've been a Christian for six months, you know what the Bible teaches about marriage. Is it that we need more knowledge and greater books and reading an encyclopedia on marriage, or do we just simply need to do what we're already told to do? And we wish we could blame it on that, right? I just don't have enough knowledge. (laughs) especially about this strange creature called a man. I don't know what to do with him and how his mind works. Is it really that you need to know more? Or do you simply need to say, God, help me do what you want me to do? Well, that being said, I want to end with just some wonderful exhortations from God's word that would point us towards desire for that. Because quite honestly, you guys, there's a lot of things in my life that when I see God instruct me to do it, I don't have the desire to do it. How about you? And so I just pray, God, give me the desire. Give me the willingness. I, I don't want to forgive that person. Give me the willingness to forgive them. I don't want to do this. Please help me with that. Uh, Lord, I don't know how to love this boss who's a total jerk, and I just, he's about ready to you know, drive me nuts. God, help me. Be the employee you want me to be. So Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.2, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Like a baby that is hungry, they're not ready for solid food, but for a mother's milk, that we would desire God's word that way. Matthew 4, 4 says, but he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus said, God's word is nourishment to our soul because primarily we're spiritual beings and we need God's word. And that's why many of our souls are uh, atrophied or anorexic because we don't feed on God's word enough. He also declares that God's word is alive and powerful and will do heart surgery on us. In Hebrews four twelve, it says, the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit, of joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's word discerns my thoughts and intents. When I'm reading it, it's dealing with my soul. We can overcome the devil as uh, with the strength of God's word in our life. 1 John 2:14, I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. So we overcome him with spiritual strength. Jesus overcame temptations 3 times from the devil, every time saying, "It is written, it is written, it has been said," using God's word that was he had hidden in his heart. This is what keeps us aware and turns on the light to give us direction in our life. From Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. How many times have I read God's word and that's the verse I needed to deal with the situation that was right in front of me. As we see... In Psalm 119 also that it gives us wisdom. God's word gives us wisdom. Check this out. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. I have more understanding than all my teachers. I understand more than the ancients. It's not because this, uh, the, the psalmist is writing arrogantly. He's just simply saying, wow, God's word gives you so much insight that you have more w- uh, wisdom than the average person. How can we keep ourselves out of sin? As the old saying goes, this book will keep you from sin, but sin will keep you from this book. In Psalm 119, verse 9, how can a young man cleanse his way by taking heed according to your word? And lastly, in short, God's word has something to transform every single life. In 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. There's nothing that you need to be fully, thoroughly equipped for that God's word will not help you. It'll teach you how to be a better parent. It'll teach you how to be a better husband or a better wife. It'll teach you how to be a better employee. It'll teach you how to be a servant in every single realm as you begin to apply it. You learn something, apply it. You hear something, apply it. And the more you do that, the more that God gives you as you use it in your life. Now, there's never been a time in my whole life, in our country, in our nation, within the body of Christ, personally, that I have needed to be anchored in the word more than the last year of my life. How about you? And so, if this is true, and the promises of God are so real and life-changing, It would be a joy to be anchored in the word with you over this next two years just to discover God's word and the joys of it as we move forward because everybody's saying, oh, this is going to be over soon. I don't believe it's going to be over soon because of our new administration and the agenda that's being pushed forward and the postmodernism that's being crammed down this generation's throat. It's unbelievable. Having traveled a lot in Europe and various things, Europe's just 50 years ahead of us. Europe is a godless place that God is not welcome. And you go into their churches and their churches are architectural wonders. You go in there on a tour and there's six pigeons in the rafters and two people in a building that seats 400. That's what it is. And without us pressing in, God's word endures forever. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's stand together and close in prayer. We'll have the worship team come up and lead us in the song. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you taught us in this parable of the sower, and we pray that your word would fall in good soil, that we would reproduce 30, 60, 100 fold in our life, that we'd be fruitful Christians in short. Lord, that you would have your way, that your spirit would take the truth of this time, that you would give us new desires for your word, new desires for prayer, and that you would give us a fresh inspiration by your spirit to move forward in these dark times, Lord, to be salt and light. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship the Lord.